Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper on Monday. June 1st, 1st of June, new month. Rabbit, rabbit. Gopher, gopher. Um, we're a little bit late because I've been out gallivanting. That's true. Tamsin was away this week and leading me to my own devices, or at least with Granger and Nico. Yes. And Tamsin was down in Arlington, Virginia, visiting Sadie. I had to check on Sadie because she's been sheltering in place uh, for low these many months. And uh, so I went down. And uh, let me tell you something. It was a breeze. What was a breeze? Driving to Washington. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. Because no one's on the road. Yeah. Well, that was good. And Washington uh, traffic can be a killer. And so I did not step out of the car Hmm. till I got to Arlington. Well, that is one of the few pluses. About the quarantine, uh, about the lockdown. So that was good. And you had a good time down there. Yes, I mean, we didn't do much. No. (laughs) Uh, We got outside a fair amount because uh, Arlington's a very walkable area with Mm -hmm. a lot of uh, running, biking, jogging trails kind of thing. And, uh, you know, we had some good food. There are many, yeah, many takeout options in the area. Uh, you know, and we uh, watch a lot of rom-coms. That's right. Lived it up. Well, so, there you go. But now I'm back, nose to the grindstone. Yes. Producing the show. Um, and, uh, yeah, we have a lot to talk about, surprisingly. We keep thinking... I don't even think that's true. No, we did. I'm telling you, this is chock full. We barely have enough time to get all this in. We better get going. It's still, I mean, the first jumps off the page, the first story, about one of the uh, subtle causes of the pandemic in China. Yes, this is a headline in the New York Times, Chopstick Revolution Faces an Uphill Fight. And so this is the thing. I don't know if you realize this, but uh, generally Chinese people, uh, it's a matter of Chinese culture to have to serve family style and to everybody takes their own chopsticks and grabs from one communal bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, and double dipping is the norm. Right. Okay. You, eat, so, you put the chopstick in your mouth, and then you, if it's good, you want some more, and you reach into the big bowl. Right. Great. Uh, with those same chopsticks. Yeah. And so uh, this, much to the distress of uh, the more, you know, uh, what would you say, etiquette slash sanitary... Yes. Um, to the scientists, to those to, people who are germ-phobics or just interested in germs generally and in the pandemic, that's almost everybody. It turns out that that's not the best way to keep socially distanced. Right. But it's a, you know, a key element uh, woven into the culture. Right. You know, you uh, uh, parents dip in and get the best bits uh, mm-hmm. for their children and uh, children serve their grandparents out of it and, and you know all using the same and so much chopsticks. so I understand that even when you have a health situation like this one to suggest that people do otherwise by having so-called serving chopsticks is met with resistance because it's considered antisocial yeah a few years ago with SARS yeah. they began a kind of a movement to mm-hmm. uh, introduce the idea of serving chopsticks now, I don't quite understand it. Um, it seems like, in this article, it makes it seem like each person 
has two sets of chopsticks. Well, that's not necessary. You just have one uh, big set of chopsticks by the big bowl. Well, I don't know. Uh, I don't know exactly how they're saying to work it, but... Um, Doesn't sound complicated. In, in any case, the chopsticks you stick in the big bowl should not be the ones you stick in your mouth. There you go. Okay? That's, that sounds uh, like a slogan. And yet, people feel that, you know, that's antisocial. Right. To eat that disrespect. way. Disrespect. It, yeah. It's disrespect okay. in their culture, I, which I can actually see. I can it's understand. a show of, you know, togetherness, right. family. You know, respect for each other. Implicit trust, implicit feeling, uh, implicit togetherness, oneness, however you want to describe it. But for obvious health reasons, I mean, this is a great way to spread bacteria, right? Yeah. Um, and, and some people do abide by the serving idea, and it's, you know, common in some families. But, but it, you know, it's hard when you go out with a bunch of people to uh, police that. Um, but uh, what I enjoy about the article is they go, the government is trying to persuade people that uh, this is a good thing to do, right. serving chopsticks. And um, they went back into the research and saying it's not always been the norm that uh, people eat communally this way. That for many years, up until the Tang Dynasty, uh, it was common to have your own, to eat from your own serving, okay? Tang Dynasty, that ends in like... Um, the 10th century, right. okay? <laughs> so that's uh, a long time ago. So for the last, uh, you know, thousand so, so or so years. The point being, even for the traditionalists, they might go with the serving chops. Well, uh, let's, the one thing to do is try, but it, the article ends with this this poor woman who's in some predicament in, in a situation where people are putting their chopsticks, double dipping like crazy. She says she has a mini heart attack. Yeah, a mini she heart sees attack. this happening. And she uh, is reduced to like picking at the edges of the bowl. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no solution for that. So, but you know, I mean, this is not terribly unusual. You are, you are a big communal oh, eater. Yeah. You will take a bite out of anyone's uh, sandwich. Know, not during the pandemic. Yeah. I, uh, I, you know, I... Not well. That will be new. Let's see if this uh, lasts that's, for you. That's the Chinese in you. That's the Chinese in you. Yes, that, yes. That's the cosmopolitan in you. Yes, let's right. let's not uh, right. limit sure. it to the Chinese. I share. Yes. But um, I think it is true that uh, there will be um, changes yeah. in behavior in many different ways as a result of this. And we've been talking about that for several weeks. Whether it's political changes and you know, etiquette changes. Yeah. Interesting. And, and this I seems mean, silly, but I think in China, it's probably not such a small thing. And, you know, maybe it will be the new thing. Maybe, you know, it will be now very manly to wash your hands mm. as opposed to I'm, manly not to wash your hands. <laughs> you think that's going to happen? I, I like the way you look at me when you say that. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of stories about different professional teams uh, uh, in professional sports getting back to it after having their seasons interrupted. And the Times has an article about a precedent for this. You think about, well, this is all always unprecedented. How could this happen? We've never missed the World Series. We've never missed the Kentucky Derby. Well, it turns out you have missed the Stanley Cup playoffs. And you go, what? What do you mean? Well, it turns out that in March 1919, the Montreal Canadiens were playing these Seattle Metropolitans uh, in a seven-game series. And uh, one of the players in the, in the game... Uh, got sick in the game, had to leave, a fellow named Joe Hall. Uh, the way that game ended, the series ended up tied, 3-3. Three to three. They were looking forward to a seventh game, but by the time the next game came around, 
A lot of players on both sides were sick with the Spanish flu. You have this all so wrong. Why? Because it wasn't three to three. Oh, it wasn't three to three. It was, it was two the two. sixth game. Yes, it was the sixth game. It, You're right. it was all very odd. Well, it's because all very it, odd. There was this crazy game where they played into double uh, overtime yes. with no score. Yeah, the problem is you're okay. older than I am. You remember this. But you're absolutely right. You caught me. And, so it was and two then to two. the next game. Right. Uh, but my point is still right. the same. They had to interrupt it, the It was series all tied up. They just needed one more game. And they couldn't play it. And this guy, oddly enough, the enforcer yeah. of the team. Who was a little guy. Gets terribly ill, <laughs> yeah. and then the rest of the team stops, starts dropping like flies. And they can't play uh, the deciding game. Yeah, they can't play the deciding game. They can't decide the series, and it's so weird because they show you a picture of the Stanley Cup itself. And as you know, Tamsin, because you're a big hockey fan, the uh, names of all the winners of the Stanley Cups, going back to the beginning of the National Hockey League, are engraved on the cup. And they show for 1919. Montreal Canadiens, Seattle Metropolitan Series, not completed. It's right yes. there on the yeah. cup, yeah. right? And so the first thing that comes to mind is say, well, gee, I'm saying to myself, did the National Hockey League go back that long? Well, it did. Okay. Were the Seattle Metropolitan, Seattle had a team in the NHL? The entries, they didn't. They were called the Pacific Coast Hockey League team, but they got to play for the Stanley Cup. Don't ask me why. But in any event, they had a big following, and that was a big deal. Okay, fine. But the bigger question is, they had ice in 1919. They had hockey rinks in 1919. Does that make sense to you? Doesn't that seem a little advanced technologically? So I had to look that up. And as I told you earlier, it turns out that they had hockey rinks, ice hockey rinks, going back to 1875. All right. 1875. So, first of all, I'm amazed by that. Right. All right. But secondly, that's not when you had the first ice skating rinks, it turns out. Because if I dug, I dug a little deeper, in 1875 is not when it started. It started in 1841. The first what ice hockey it? rinks, ice hockey rinks, or yeah. I should say ice hockey, ice rinks, started yeah. in 1841. And you're saying to yourself, do they have natural ice and coolant and all that in 1841? They did not. The way they had the so-called ice then, it was a substitute considering of consisting of hogs, lard, and various salts. That's what people skated on in these indoor rinks in 1841. I don't even believe that. I'm telling you, it was so popular. No one skates on lard. Just listen, listen to this. It was so popular, there was a so-called rink mania going on that went in for three years, and then in 1844, it fell off and came out of fashion, and you know why? Because it smelled off. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> the hogs lord themselves smelled so smelled so bad that oh people God. couldn't skate, and they had to get out of there. So they put that all aside. You know what? Here, and then here's they the thing. The next rink. Here's the thing. Yeah. Anybody can write anything on Wikipedia. <laughs> Damn, okay. I'm telling you, this is true. You might I want to vet your sources. I'm telling you, before you come up, hogs lord with a hogwash story Vert, like this. There's some great skating, but, but you know, let me just say, yeah. Uh, sadly enough, this the enforcer guy passed away. Joe Hall, he died. From right. the Spanish influenza. Yeah. But the, the, all the other guys on the team, and survived. it was the Canadian team that was really um, mostly ill, Yeah, um, survived. Right. So that's good to know. Right. But, uh, you know, even though they went through with the World Series that year, right. they, they suspect that it was hugely responsible for spreading um, the flu around Boston. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh. Because they had the uh, you know these big crowds uh, in oh. the um, stadium. 
Okay. Well, the Vets so would be the safest team in the league. So then. lots of implications They're not going there. to the World Series. Speaking of games. Yes. You know, although <laughs> um, it is getting to be a tedious subject, what to do. Well, there's an intro. <laughs> um, there's an intro. Tedious. The word yeah. tedious so comes mo- to mind. Mostly I'm like gliding over yeah. all these articles of, you know, the latest, greatest uh, um, internet, this or that, you know, mm-hmm. bug. Forget about it. Right. But uh, what this did catch my eye. Yeah. It was an article about traveling the world mm-hmm. by playing games. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we are, you know, we do have some devoted fans in our family of uh, board games. Yes. In our, even our extended family. Yeah. I think of Zeke and Dixon and, you know, many, many uh, games players. Um and so I did glance at it also because one of the offer now one of the offerings was just what you'd expect. The National Parks edition of Monopoly. Mm, okay. Yeah. So the, the playing pieces are quite cute, you know, like boots and binoculars and yeah. blah blah blah. Okay, so that's fine. We all know about Monopoly. Then number four is called Lorenzo Il Magnifico. And it's a board game. Where you can be a Medici, okay, oh, really? and have a family, it's, 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 and uh, it's a, somehow in the game, it's a game for you, you send out your family to do all kinds of things like and buy things? art and oh, you know take over right. um, principalities, you know whatever, uh, and uh, it gets pretty good reviews, mm. all right, and all of your favorite names come up: Michelangelo, Botticelli, you know, Lucretia Borgia, all of my uh, you know. Um, so that's fun. It's interesting that if you want to buy it, yeah. it costs between 80 and a uh, hundred bucks. Really? Yeah. It's mm. quite expensive, well, but it does get pretty good reviews. Um, I, I like the way in the article they say about 50. It's not about 50. It's pretty pricey. And then there's another one that's quite, I think, odd yeah. called Sagrada. And the idea there is maybe you're familiar with the, the famous Gaudi uh, Cathedral in Barcelona, mm-hmm. Sagrada Familia, mm-hmm. um, still unfinished to this day. But very, it, it, you've seen pictures of it, haven't you? It looks almost like a sand castle with these very drippy yeah, pinnacles. Yeah, right, okay, right. Um, This is a game, and it can be played by one person, yeah. which is handy in this day of sheltering in place. Okay. Um, and, uh, what you do is you throw, you toss colored dice and then somehow use the dice to fill in squares on a stained glass window you are creating. Hmm. Now I wasn't highly impressed by the images I saw, but maybe it's funny, fun, interesting. I don't know. I couldn't really tell. Uh, but um, so those are some okay. ideas from the board game world. Yeah. All right. Good. So uh, another thing, of course, we're grappling with is, is reopening theaters. And um, there was an article by Ben Brantley that we discussed in terms of what Ben Brantley, the reviewer for the New York Times, was recalling his favorite live performances, which was an interesting article. But um yeah, we can't cover it here, but the point is, Do you have a favorite live performance. There's no substitute for. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't think of you. You're kind of putting me on the spot, but quite I a am few. putting you on the spot. Well, did you have something in mind? Um, 
Yeah. I feel, <laughs> I think I had one before. I mean, I have to say that, uh, you know, there are, are musicals I've seen. Yeah. Um, and one of the ones he mentions is, of course, Dream Girls with Jennifer Hall. Well, that comes to mind right away. And right, right. Th- that uh, is a show heart stopping, you know, moment. Yeah. Uh, At the end of there. the first act. Right. I- I'm telling you, I'm not going. And, you know, and I have been to musicals, including Hamilton, and I know you won't agree about this, but where I have been brought to tears by just uh, the the combination, not even not even the emotion, but the combination of rhythm and music and the moment. I'm not going to fight you on that, but we're talking about particular performances, particular performances, particular people. Yeah. Yeah. But see, I think one thing that he mentions, which I think is key. Yeah is that moment is not just a product of the actor, sure. yeah. but it's the product of the audience. Right. And that chemistry, yeah. that momentum that develops in the course of that performance. So, I would have to, you know... Let me throw some off the topic without really testing it. Uh, and this is not going to... This is going to surprise you. Mm-hmm. Donna Murphy in Wonderful Town. Uh, kind of okay. knocked me out. And I don't know that anyone, uh, people love Donna Murphy, but yeah. uh, I mean, I was just amazed by that. She just kind of struck me and it was mostly funny. Um, but uh, anything with Audrey McDonald, I mean, uh, it, you know, I could probably think of two or three things. Even when Audrey McDonald started singing Carousel in a supporting role, mm-hmm. she just kind of sat up straight and were like, oof. Um you know, we'll have to do some homework. And yeah, think about we'll come back. It. I, I would it. be curious what we can remember from straight plays. Oh yeah, um, okay. You know, just uh, without music, um, yeah. just performances like that. That really, I feel like. Um, oh, what the? Um, what's that? Tom Stoppard. Travesties or what's one? No, no, no. The one about love. The, oh, the invention like a, of love. The invention <clears throat> of love. I feel like that had a couple of moments. Oh yes, that was for me. fantastic. Uh, but uh, also. Um, Mm. Okay, I'm gonna come. Back. All right, no, no, we'll we'll, we'll have to revisit this. Uh, I threw you Look, a curveball. Anything with Franklin Delano. Fra- Franklin Delano's couple moments. I mean, I, I would come back to that. Yeah. Uh, the Niels Bohr play in London was fantastic. It was just knocked me out. All right, we we will. You kind of put me on the spot, but in any event, so now we really miss the theater. So uh, there's an article in the paper. Yeah, I can't go on. And it says uh, Union says theaters need safety protocols before reopening, and it's an interview with a woman, uh, Kate Schindel, who's the head of uh, Actors' Equity Association, which represents 51,000 theater performers and stage managers. Kate Schindel, as I happen to know, used to be a Broadway performer. That's her background. And uh, I found this article totally odd um, and borderline uh, useless, but I don't know whether I'm blaming the article writer or Kate Schindel. I can't pull it apart. It doesn't make any difference. I don't want money here to blame anybody, but if you believe the article, what Kate Schindel is saying that uh, from her perspective in terms of actors being allowed to act, for equity to allow them to act, there have to be four things have to be under, satisfied. Number one, the epidemic must be under control. Number two, with effective testing, few new cases, and contact tracing, Right. And uh, she says that uh, they're not ready to, the equity is not ready to approve work in any corner of the nation until those four requirements are met. 
Well, I can tell you when the four requirements are going to be met, met with some precision. Never. They will mm-hmm. never be met. Mm-hmm. So you're saying to yourself, this can't be that this woman's saying this. Um, and, and maybe she's not because there's some, you know, she actually goes on to say, she's quoted to say, gee, you know, I'm sure at some point, this is a quote from Schindel. There's going to be some fantastic director who wins a bunch of awards for staging an Arthur Miller play as a comment on living in the post-COVID age. And the actors will, ma- will wear masks and gloves. And everybody will sit there looking at this piece of theater in a whole new way because they've done this with creative staging. And I'm saying to myself, well, yeah, I could see that happening. Somebody coming up with a creative way to do things, but not if the requirements outlined in this article are serious because even that kind of thing can't go forward in any part of the country if they're serious about all these four things being met. And I don't think people are taking it seriously. They have uh, another interview here with a person who runs the Barrington stage and they're coming, they're putting together production uh, in August, a one-man play uh, that will be the indoors and then an outdoor concert version of South Pacific uh, theaters in the Berkshires, and they say, we, we hope we can work it out with equity. So, which, you know, it just, it, it, it runs completely against what uh, Ms. Schindel seems to have outlined as the requirement. So, I have no idea. I have no idea what equity is. She said that you can't do it anywhere in the country. Anywhere in the, the country, whole country. Until the whole country is all set with, with no reported cases and contact tracing. We'll never have contact tracing. So, but, but in any event, uh, in the whole country. So, mm-hmm. it's kind of, useless and confusing and again it could be the there was some miscommunication between her and the person that's a little depressing no it can't be right that's really gonna it can't be right uh but it actually it's a negative thing even if it's not right because you send out that message a lot of people are just gonna wring their hands say that's it i'm done uh so there's an article here um to contrast with that of a theater that's performing in lockdown which is uh, the seacoast repertory Theater, which is in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which is putting on a performance of the marvelous Wonderettes. And they're in full costume. They have a photo here, full costume, full background, full set. And uh, how are they doing it? What they're doing is they're performing a live performance uh, every night and they're filming it. Uh, They're streaming it, if you will. But they're marketing in a way that it only can be viewed and experienced as a live performance. So they're having people pay $20 a piece to see it, and they're not keeping it. So in other words, they're not posting it. They're not posting it. You can't stream it and see it later. That's it. So, uh, and uh, according to this, it's been a great experience. And they quote all the measures that the actors are going through to make sure they're safe and all that, uh, which would satisfy anybody except possibly actors' equity. Uh, but that's okay because they're a non-equity house. Okay. They're not using equity performers. So they're just doing what they think makes sense. But they sense. don't have an audience. They don't have a live audience okay. sitting there. But two things. Number one, they're able to do this technically pretty easily with the minimal staff because of the wonders of technology. Number two, they're selling about 100 tickets, $20 tickets, every night, which is not too bad for this place in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Um and beyond that, they're saying they see this as the future. When they go even to partial seating, they might seat 35, 50, 70 people, whatever it is, and still be doing this webcasting at the same time. And then they're really making money. 
So because even if you have to cut down the house with social distancing, you can make it work. So in any event, uh, that's positive. So you can go to New Hampshire for that. Or I could probably stream it for that. 20 bucks. And if you sit there with your husband, Tamsin, you have to pay $40 on the honor system. So oh, really? Him. Yes, that's oh, right. There's that. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. that's like the going rate. Yes. Sadie and I watched a movie this weekend, and she had to pay $20. All right. Well, this is live theater, though, so this is really movie. better than that. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, but there's still, you don't have an audience, Dan. That's, um, yeah. That changes things. All right. So speaking of having an audience, uh, Vincent Van Gogh always has an audience. Right. And uh, uh, as you may remember, there was a uh, painting stolen. Uh, I think it was March 30th uh, from a museum in Amsterdam and uh, in the Netherlands. And... Uh, so there was an article, What to Do with a Stolen Van Gogh, right. in the New York Times. We all run into that And they problem. interviewed yeah. Octave Durham, who uh, just got out of jail for stealing a few uh, Van Gogh paintings mm -hmm. in 2004. Right. And so they were asking him, like, you know, uh, what do you think of this? And he watched the film, the uh, security footage, and he said, you know, look at that. His gear is not even professional. If you're a professional, you're fully in black. He's got jeans and Nike sneakers on. Okay, disgraceful. And uh, so uh, these guys did it with a sledgehammer and just kind of walked in. I guess it's a smaller museum. I'm not really uh, sure. And uh, you know, took the painting and walked out. And it was uh, the um, Parsonage Garden at Noonan in Spring. Uh, so. The question is, what do you do next? What's the point of stealing a Van Gogh? And uh, when they talked to Durham, he said, well, you know, I, I thought I was going to sell it. Okay. And, but he had actually, he was a little bit ahead of the game. And he said, if that didn't work out, I was going to use it to negotiate. He had been friendly with a criminal who had once stolen some paintings and uh, used them as uh, in bartering for a lighter sentence. Mm -hmm. Like, I'll tell you where these paintings are if, you know, uh, you don't uh, prosecute me so much on this or that. Mm -hmm. So um, so he had that already in his mind. Uh, and uh, But uh, he actually ended up selling his two paintings. He was able to sell them, but, but uh, it wasn't easy. They say that uh, thieves imagine that there are people out there who would love to have stolen famous art on their walls. But it turns out that's not the case at all. Oh, really? Okay. And that that's really just in the movies. The movie they refer to here is Dr. No. Uh, I don't know if you remember. I remember Dr. No. I don't remember what was on the wall. About, okay. Uh, anyway. Um, so the problem is that uh, selling a stolen painting is get you a lot less money than, uh, you know, on the open market, okay? So that an artwork in the criminal underworld is worth about 10% mm. what it would be worth out in That's the real world. Yeah. So if you have a $10 million painting, you yeah. know, the most you're going to get from the criminal world is a million bucks, right. okay? Durham says it's even less than that. So I guess he didn't do that well. He sold his paintings to a mafioso in Naples, 
and uh, the police uh, came up with them mm-hmm. uh, years later. Um, and, and then, you know, people ended up in jail, etc. But I think that's pretty interesting that they do use it, uh, they do use them for bartering. But he said... Uh, um, well, look, I, I know where these paintings often end up. Yeah. And that's uh, on Antiques Roadshow. I mean, well, they say, well the, one of the big problems is that uh, the paintings, um, if they're not worth like $10 million, yeah. uh, and they're worth a lot less... And you can't really sell them. They just destroy them. Yes, but it, so they may be meaningful, we interesting very, yeah, We'll be watching but, Antiques Roadshow tonight, and someone's going to have something to say, we've had this over the mantle for years, and what's this? And, you know, my, my, I wouldn't be, be surprised if that happens. Yeah, I mean, a lot of stuff's probably stolen. I don't know where it came from, and every once in a while someone says, you know, this thing, $80,000. Yeah. No, yeah. every once in a while there's a story in the newspaper about somebody comes into Christie's to sell something, yeah. and it turns out <laughs> Christie's recognizes it. Uh, but uh, uh, again, it's a it's an odd painting to steal. Anyway, again, it's an, it's an well, older Van Gogh. It's before he gets all listen, colorful I'm, and fun. Listen, the fact and that uh, you know the fact that the guy couldn't even trouble himself to dress in black to steal the painting is, is off putting from the very word. Well, I, I feel that our, our buddy Durham, yeah. the, the professional, yeah. was quite insulted by he that. Was. It's, it's, uh, he was. you know barbarians. He, he said. Uh, he has, uh, what is it, three rules? He says, uh, let me just give you this before we leave. Um, talk smooth, be cool, have a fast car, and never touch anyone. Those okay. are four rules, but yes. I, I know. It. He actually said he has one rule. <laughs> so uh, I was trying to help him out there. But, um, you know, being cool is uh, so part of the deal. Cool. Being cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, so words, words everybody loves a fast car. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, speaking of fast cars, thank you for that lead-in, dear. No. <laughs> Smooth. Uh, all right. So, you know, I told you there's an article about uh, the Aston Martin that the Bond used in Goldfinger. You said, haven't we talked I about love, that before? I love the James Bond PR machine. Now, Don't is, you? Well, it, this, Even though that movie didn't come out there, keeping this his is not, name in there. This is, this Every is a, single week we see a James Bond well, article, There was something we? about the From Russia With Love. Those people know what they're doing. Yes, there was something about From Russia With Love in the Wall Street Journal. And now I'm reading with From Russia With Love because I said I've had it. I give in. And we'll see. We'll see. I'll give you a report on that, okay? It only It's $3 on, on your Kindle. It's hard to resist. So... Speaking of uh, not three dollars, the car that we talked about before was the original uh, car, the Aston Martin that was used in Goldfinger, which was sold at auction for six point three eight five million dollars. But uh, the people who who make the car, uh, Aston Martin, of course, have found a way to monetize that to their benefit. They're recreating the car. They produced twenty five new Aston Martins that were done in great detail to replicate. The movies Aston Martin, and they're serving selling those at the bargain price of three point five million a piece, and frankly, they've sold them. All twenty five are sold. So Armand, I know you're reaching for your checkbook. Forget it. You're too late. Sorry, <laughs> we were too late to get this out to you. Uh, but in any event, so but you couldn't know, you just take an Aston Martin and pimp it up yourself? Yeah, yeah except for one thing. Okay, what? they do go into a lot of detail about you know the the silver birch paint scheme. Uh, the dashboard, the gauges, identical color, texture, all that. They're very faithful to it. Cockpit instrumentation. And that's the kind of thing you're talking about. So you can get somebody to, as you put so delicately, pimp it out and get it to look that way. 
But here's the best part. You may remember from the movie that uh, it had all these weapons in it. Right. And, and the new the car that they've replicated kind of has some of the weapons in it. That makes it a little different. So uh, there is no objection. So there's like a seat. compartment in the back that drops uh, thumbtacks on the road. Ooh, ooh, very good. There is no ejection seat, uh, as no quote non mischievous use could be identified for it. And there is no nail dumper. What you're calling there's the no thumbtack. nail dumper. There's no nail dumper or even a thumbtack dumper. But there are oil and smoke sprayers. <laughs> but they'll emit simulated substances, not oil and smoke. And there are machine guns that won't fire ammunition because that would not be compliant with regulations, they say. But the but guns, they fire like silly string? The guns do appear to work and have light bursts to indicate them firing, along with authentic gunshot sound effects amplified through speakers for a very impressive effect. How's that? Scary. 3.5 million. Right. I, we'd go into it more, but they're done. All right. Save so, up, Dan. So we have been, we, you know, we've watched a bunch of movies. We can talk as much as we want about them. But the, the main one that we saw was a movie called The Sisters Brothers, which you remembered and I had forgotten, which is a 2018 movie uh, about uh, two brothers. Um, it's a Western. Two brothers in the Wild West, all the way out in California, the real rough West. The two brothers were played by Joaquin Phoenix um, and uh, what's his John name? John C. Riley. John C. Riley. Yes, it was seen. They don't even seem like brothers. But now that I say it, they're brothers. How could they be brothers? They couldn't look more different or seem more different. I don't think they were going for verisimilitude. Not in, in that uh, area, movie. no. no. Uh, and, uh, or in any part of the movie. Yes. It was not exactly they, true to life. No, they are rough customers. Uh, and they're basically in the service of a difficult uh, figure uh, called the Commodore, who's this imperious uh, commander, if you will, that at a distance is op has many, many people working for him doing terrible things, and they're two of the so-called operatives, and they basically kill people. Uh, and uh, they do encounter these two other folks, one a fellow, named, a fellow played by Jake Hall, sort of an English scout who's quite articulate, and it's his job to find some of the people that the Sisters Brothers follow up with. And then uh, a fellow played by Riz Ahmed, uh, who turns out to be someone who has developed a very uh, ingenious way of identifying gold by putting a substance in the water that would have the gold highlight itself. And uh, it's such a valued uh, commodity, once rumor has it that he has this ability, that his life is in danger because everybody wants this substance. And he's a deep thinker and a philo uh, philosophical sort. Uh, and uh, he impresses Gyllenhaal, and then the two encounter the the uh, brothers who are otherwise violent, and they develop along. And uh, I don't want to say too much more about it, but I thought it was a damned interesting movie. Uh, it was uh, directed by a fellow named uh, Jacques Audiard, uh, was a Frenchman who had done some impressive movies, but he had no real link to American Westerns or anything like it, so it's a very fresh take on it. And it was a beautiful movie, yes. uh, apart from everything yes. else. But what do you think of it? I thought it was interesting and it was beautiful, but, uh, you know, it's all about shooting, so. Yeah, it, you know, it, isn't, uh, it isn't, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you say that, but, uh, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but there's an awful lot of, I mean, the core of it is quite violent. It was heavily violent. Okay. It was heavily and, violent. Uh, 
you know, it's not, uh, I'm not being squeamish about it. It just doesn't uh, engage me every minute. No, it's not cartoonish violence because the violence is part of what's going on. They're in a terrible environment. They're in a terrible situation. Uh, the, whole, the country at that point is terribly violent. Uh, and it's the only way they know. And what the movie becomes about uh, is uh, their development, in particular John C. Riley's development, uh, as he's looking for something beyond that. And he encounters these other people uh, who open his eyes to some degree and they become a little more civilized and thinking about things a little more deeply. Walking Phoenix, the brother, is even more deadly than John C. Riley. His eyes are a little slower to open. Um, and you see them straddling these two worlds and yet trying to get under, out of, from under the thumb of the commoner, which from some interpretations represents overwhelming and the awful side of capitalism as it existed at that time. Um, I, I, it's kind of stayed with me. I mean, it really stayed with me. I kind of um, liked the movie a great deal, um, and I'm surprised I didn't know more about it. So in any event, Sister Brothers, I would sort of recommend that. I know you said you saw some rom-coms, um, and uh, you saw the one with Tracy Ellis Ross. Well, High Note. It was, it was fine. Okay. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> that's about right. And uh, I, I was... Yeah, if you, you know, it had uh, good music, etc. And then there was um, the uh, there was a teen movie, kind of a teen movie we watched. I All think right. it was called The Half of It. Okay. So we watched a couple of movies here. We saw uh, The Rainmaker with Matt Damon, which is an old John Grisham movie, which was actually uh, pretty good. Claire Danes was in it, too. And uh, Matt Damon is sort of this young lawyer who's somewhat idealistic in Memphis. Uh, and then uh, but a movie which had a surprisingly good reception which was The Long Goodbye, uh, which was a movie made in the early 70s, directed by Robert Altman, and starring Elliot Gould, in which he plays sort of a under-his-breath, wise-cracking private detective. Uh, based on a, it's based on a Raymond Chandler novel, wrote all these detective novels, but it's sort of a send-up of that. And it's quite dated, uh, even though some people love the movie at the time, but what stunned me is that Granger Nico really liked the movie, and you know Granger chose it, without knowing much about it. I didn't say anything. I said, I wonder how this is going to play. And they ended up big fans of Elliot Gould, which I'm stunned by. No one knows who <laughs> Elliot Gould is anymore. So they're going to follow up and watch MASH, which is a much better movie, um, which, again, is Altman and, and Gould. So they, they have that to look forward to. All right, so the, the final article that we ran to, I kind of just ran to by accident, and it was just surprise upon surprise. There's an article in the Times that says, From Carousel in 1945 to Inescapable Today, Many voices have sung You'll Never Walk Alone, which has become a COVID-era anthem. So You'll Never Walk Alone is a somewhat spiritual uh, song, I think that's a fair description, that appears in Carousel, which was the uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein musical in the 1940s, uh, late 1940s, early 1950s. I'm going to forget the exact year. But in any event... Um, they describe here when it comes up in the musical, I, the version that we saw was a little different. It was at the end, if you recall. I mean, this mm -hmm. woman goes through quite a few hard times, loses her husband, because she's having trouble raising her daughter. Her daughter's graduating. And the uh, headmaster, who at the graduation says, you know, whenever, everything's very fraught. And he just says, you know, there's a song that we used to sing growing up that sort of got us through things. And I wonder if the young people have heard it or sing it today. And he sings. You'll never walk alone, and the whole company joins you. You'll never walk mm. alone. That's the way I remember it. And you tell me that you remember the song well. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so this article just lists all these different uh, well, apparently preeminent recordings. Right? Yeah, I mean, as as it used to be the case, but even more the case for this song. Apparently, 
other people recorded this song from a Broadway musical. And all kinds of people. Uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers, uh, which is just a rock group. The Liverpool Football Club, which is a, what we call a soccer team in the UK. And there's a bunch it's of, kind of otherwise, yeah, it's hooligans. Their, it's their, hooligans. Hacker hooligans. But it's their motivation along. song. That's whatever, right. right. And, and uh, Jerry Lewis played it as a muscular dystrophy telethon. Uh, the Sonics, uh, I don't know who that is. Um, but also, they talk about a recording by Patti LaBelle and by Aretha Franklin. And you can see it's that kind of song. Yeah. Well, you got to hand it to um, Rodgers and Hammerstein. Yeah, Oscar especially Hammerstein. Hammerstein. Yeah, yeah, especially Hammerstein. It is a but, terribly effective, inspirational song. Right. And it's interesting that it survives even today, 70 years later, yeah. right? Um, so... Uh, anyway, the um, the the recording that is getting a lot of play, I guess, these few weeks, is actually a British recording uh, by Michael Ball, and featuring what's uh, the captain, Captain Tom Moore, uh-huh. um, and, and, uh huh, and and choir with them. And Captain and Tom Moore is a hundred-year-old gentleman I guess has achieved some fame in Britain, although I just don't know him. Well, he was just knighted. He uh, he raised a lot of money uh, walking. Uh, you have to read about him. He's okay, okay. he's quite he's quite an interesting um, character. And uh, well, we're going to play the recording for you, and I'll just tell you, I'm not going to describe it. It's it's something. moving. Yes, it's okay. instantly moving, and I don't. It, I can't it's even, even more more moving to to see the video. So okay. I recommend that. All right. So um, we'll but, leave that with you. You'll never walk alone. Uh, it's a good thought in these terrible times. Uh, and uh, until then, until next week. This is Tamson Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. Let Tamson and Dan read the paper. See you in a few. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high. And don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of the storm, there's a golden sky and sweet to the song of the lark. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of the storm, there's a golden sky and a sweet silver song of the lark. Walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain, though your dreams be charmed. Stand blow Walk on Walk on, walk on, walk on With hope In your heart, heart And you'll never Walk alone You'll never Walk Oh, in your heart, and you never.